Chief, believe me, you're in for a treat just as soon as Jimmy gets back here. Great Caesar's ghost, what's holding him up? You know I can't work without a good breakfast. Welcome back to Airwaves Full of Bacon, the Chicago-based food and restaurant audio podcast by me, Michael Gebert, James Beard Award-winning writer and video maker for the Chicago Reader, Serious Eats Chicago, and other super publications. This is the Just Off Randolph Street episode. At least it kind of worked out that way. First, we hang out in the kitchen at Grand Atkins's next. What's that really like? You'll find out, and I'll talk to Chef Dave Barron about the Bocuse Door menu running now. Then it's the second anniversary of one of my favorite places, the Spanish wine bar Vera. I'll talk to Liz and Mark Mendez about what they've learned running their own place that long. And then I welcome back Anthony Todd of Chicagoist. We'll talk about Charlie Trotter's life and legacy, the sudden resurgence of steakhouses, how food media looks six months since we last talked, and more. That's all in this episode of Airwaves Full of Bacon, more powerful than a speeding cronut. Well, we have a special treat this time. I'm hosting the entire show from the kitchen at Next. Okay, that's not actually true, but it's radio, so we can pretend anything in the theater of the mind, including being in the kitchen of the most theatrical restaurant in town. If the dining room at Next is a tough ticket to get, hanging out in the kitchen all evening has to be an even rarer experience. So what's it like to be in the kitchen of Next? The cooks are mostly silent, heads down and focused, except when they need to communicate with the expediter, who keeps the status of each table in his head, like an air traffic controller. Many dishes are timed around the one or two ingredients that have to be plated hot. So around the room I see different dishes in a state of half-assembly. When the moment comes, there's a flurry of finishing touches, and then out four or six or eight of them will go at once. Perfect. The current show in the theater of Next is the Bocuse d'Or menu, a kind of free-form tribute to the international culinary competition held every other year in Lyon, France. Not only do the dishes evoke what the judges sample in Lyon, but twice each evening the star dishes are paraded through the room to a trumpet fanfare. I asked Chef Dave Barron about how you turn the very artificial nature of a culinary competition into a dinner that flows pleasurably for diners. It took a while to really find the voice behind it. Um, you know, at first it was kind of a hodgepodge of dishes that didn't really make sense together. Um, and I think over the last two weeks leading up to it, I really found the story for it. And then it, it fell together. So now it's, it's going well. How many courses? Is it? Uh, 15. 15. Okay. So but we... Um, you know, with this menu, with it being more expensive, a little more elegant, we really tried to, like with, with vegan or even with Albuli, there were a lot of overlapping courses where you'd have four or five little things on your table at once. This is very much <laughs> your table's cleared, it's reset, the next one comes out. It's much more of a sort of refined French-style dining service. So, Now, how, how is it, Boku Store, is it dishes that were, things that were made for no, it? Or? Um, well, so we're using... So the middle section of the menu is two fish courses and two meat courses. And uh, for the Bocuse, basically, as the chef, you would produce, uh, in previous years, one fish platter and one meat platter, each designed to serve 14 people. Um, now what they do is they produce one fish plate uh, for each judge and one meat platter. So we have one fish platter that walks and then the plated course walks. And then we have one fish plate, representative of the way they used to do it and the way they currently do it. And then both meat courses are presented on platters and in plates. So the middle section of the menu pertains to how they would present the courses. Okay. So the things around it, what are they? How do they relate to Boku Store? Um, well, they don't at all. Okay. <laughs> the menu's really written like, um, uh, just like a classic French menu, something that you would see at like, like French laundry style or Ducasse style, where there's a series of canapes at the beginning, and then it moves into more substantial courses cheese into desserts, menus. So it's a very classic French-styled menu. 
Um, I think a lot of, really a lot of the courses, what we did is we looked at classic French flavors and just rethought the presentations. Um, so like the salmon dish doesn't look like anything you'd really recognize, but at the end of the day, it's salmon and brown butter and wheat. And that's it, you get that anywhere. You know? um, and so even the trout, the trout's based off of, like my grandparents used to always make uh, smoked trout and eggs for breakfast. It was like something they do because they'd always go fishing, and so it's trout and eggs. Um, so, you know, classic things that we're used to that are familiar, but it doesn't look familiar at all. I think it's more visual because that's kind of what I think of with those competitions. There's a lot of making things yeah, spectacular looking. I really didn't want it to be like you'd see exactly at Boku. So I veered away from a lot of silver and a lot of the sparkles and a lot of, um, I don't know, just so many things it's like, well, I did a knife cut like this and then I glazed it like that and I put two little perfect squares of this. And that's just not the style of food that I cook. And so what we did is rather than dream up this glorious platter and then figure out the components and then put them on a plate, we thought about food and plating and because we're a restaurant, not people who do platters and we have to at the end of the day serve a dining room. I scan the many half-completed dishes in the room. The logs stuffed with herbs which will be lit with a torch to release their aroma. A roasted trout skeleton spanning a salad like a bridge. Perhaps the most elegant is a cauliflower custard topped with a pool of what looks like rosé. On the bottom you have a, uh, a cauliflower custard. On the top you have uh, red verjus, foie gras, crispy cauliflower chips, and white chocolate. But the flavors are such that you could also describe this as white chocolate on the bottom, rose gel, and then foie gras because it's a white chocolate cauliflower custard and a rose verjus gel. But it's savory. So depending on how I describe it to you, you'll taste it one of two ways. And then table side, you see all the roses on the tables? I hate centerpieces that don't have a function. And everyone in the front of the house wanted a centerpiece for this, and they really wanted flowers, and we were looking at Bocuse and what they have, and they all have flowers on the table. Um, so because it says rose in it, we decided to put the, peach, or the pink rose on the table, which matches this with the white and the red. And so we fill this with nitrogen on the table side, this emergent nitrogen, they shatter into the bowl, and then they dust the top with rose petals, and that garnishes it. It's kind of a cool trick. This menu, Overall, for the kitchen, it's probably one of the more challenging ones. There's so much classic and modern technique mixed in. You know, there's things set with different hydrocolloids, and there's souffle that's like as classic as you go. I mean, yeah. In like back-to-back -back courses, you know, there's no trickery to that at all. That's just right out of Bocuse. One thing that surprises me is how Midwestern many of the ingredients in the seemingly French dishes are from the trout and the trout and eggs, to the apples and huckleberries that turn up in the desserts. I mean, that was the goal. That's, I think that's something that's really become a part of what I've been doing here, is just trying to bring a point of reference. I mean, at Alinea, all we, our goal is like, whatever it is best in the world, let's find it and bring it in. And so now here, we started telling more of a story with it as the menus progressed, and it's become more of a, you know, like with the Kaiseki menu, it became almost Midwestern Kaiseki. You know, what do we have with this local and how do we bring the philosophy to what we have here? And I think that really kind of started the idea of this is, you know, this is what's at our, at our disposal now. I think the hunt represented that somewhat. Um, even vegan, it wasn't like what kind of crazy fruits in Brazil that we can show that would be cool to have on a vegan menu. It was what farms do we like to work with and what, what can we really showcase and make this big drawn out menu. So I think it's, I think it's kind of becoming somewhat of the identity of the restaurant as it evolves, is separating itself from the money end. Mm, I think it needs a little more caviar. Okay, we're back. I'll have the links to the photos I took for the reader in the blog post at skyfullofbacon.com. And if you enjoyed visiting Nick's Kitchen, I'd really appreciate it if you went to iTunes and gave Airwaves Full of Bacon a star rating. I won't presume to say what rating that should be, 
which will help me make it more visible within the food podcast section and help gain me listeners. I appreciate anything else you do to help introduce it to other people too, like tweeting it, Facebooking it, or sending somebody a link and saying, hey, listen to this. I don't have any organization or publicity behind it, it's just me. So if you like that somebody is taking you inside the food scene with interesting chefs and other folks, the best way to show your appreciation is to share it. Again, with a rating at iTunes and a little social media nudge. Speaking of next, by the time you listen to this, the latest round of Michelin stars for Chicago may have been released, and my guess is that they'll finally bow to the pressure and decide that it is possible to evaluate next and give it some kind of award. Despite the fact that it's hard to get tickets, though not nearly as hard as it once was, and the restaurant is different every few months, though not that different either in the end. Meanwhile, despite the fact that Michelin claims it's all about the food, they will probably again overlook one of the best restaurants in town, Vera, a Spanish wine bar run by Liz and Mark Mendez, who met when she was the sommelier and he was the chef of Carnival. If Michelin is about food that's all duded up, Vera is a powerful argument for simplicity, for the idea that the best chef is the one who futzes it up the least. Vera recently celebrated its second anniversary, and I spoke to the Mendezes about what they've learned and how they feel about getting or not getting the tire company love. Congratulations on your second anniversary. We're still alive. Yeah. And married. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the bigger miracle than that your business is still going. <laughs> what have you learned in the last two years? Uh, that running a kitchen and running a business are two very different things and I thought that because I ran a kitchen I knew how to run a business and that was a giant learning curve for me you know I some things I certainly was had been exposed to and knew but there was a lot that I didn't know and had to learn and uh, that's been the biggest uh, thing that I've seen where it's like okay you making good food and good service it's difficult, but it's it's something we are used to doing. But running a business and making it profitable is, is something that we've had to learn. And it's, it's been very difficult. We learned, I quickly learned myself that you can't just do anything you want. You know, I thought that that was what opening your restaurant was about, that sort of freedom, do whatever you want. And I you can't. And I could change the menu anytime I want, but there's a lot of other things you just can't do. Um, and that was like the biggest thing. But I mean, there's always good and bad to everything, you know, and having a really small restaurant, it's great that I can do anything I want anytime I want to, uh, but there, there's a price for that, you know, and that's the biggest thing that I've learned. I'd, I'd like a lot of things. I'd like to put more stuff in the restaurant, have nicer kitchen equipment, you know, maybe have more cooks, but, you know, right now we can't afford it. So you can't afford it. It's just like, you know. And really, it's not that big a deal. A lot of stuff is just things that I would like, and not things that maybe are certainly 100% necessary. Just things that you want, you know. But I think we do all right with what we have, you know. Uh, my partner is always, he's always shocked at, he thinks he, uh, of the level of the things that we do with what we have. He's always kind of shocked at what we use. Like, I can't imagine, when he said that to me one day, he's like, I can't, he's like, I can't imagine what kind of food you would make if you had a real kitchen. I'm like, what does that mean? What even does that mean? I mean, I have a real kitchen. It works. I have equipment that works. Maybe I don't have a lot of fancy stuff or a million cooks, but what we have works really well. It's just, yeah, I'd like to have more stuff or whatever. It's kind of vague. I don't want to, like, talk, be too... I feel if you're too honest, like, I don't want to, I don't know. The you don't want to be no. negative Nelson? No, I don't. You know, I don't want people to think that like it's it's painful or something because it's not. We I, I love this restaurant, I love this place, I love my wife, you know. And but there are things about it that are at times can be soul crushing, you know. And you but with any business, any business, any no matter, small any, business, any I small, think small business, business is you know, the you, key word there. You, you can't give up and you have to keep going. 
you know, things that used to stress me out a year ago, now I kind of laugh at. I think it's funny, which I've always, you know, when I worked with other people, owners specifically, I would be freaking out about certain things and they would laugh and I'd be like, why are they laughing? I don't understand. Like, it's crazy talk. Like, why, what's wrong with them? And now I do the same thing. I just think it's funny. What uh, has the menu changed over time? Been particularly <laughs> anything that's been kind of like a business-driven decision about what you can do and can't do. Well, we made it uh, smaller because um, I felt like we were trying to do too much. Uh, at least I was trying to do too much with what I had. I felt like uh, we didn't necessarily need ten cheeses. Three kinds of ham, and I thought that, that was was overcompensating. I think a little bit. There's five kinds of ham at one point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's it was too much. We did change the menu a ton. Um, menu change day is never not stressful, yeah. and it was a lot of stress to change the menu over and over and over again. Um, but we were trying to keep it seasonal and do all these really cool things. That can be hard sometimes. I think we we almost I would say hyper seasonal. Yeah. And I, I, I kind to of the point where someone would come in and they come in ten days later and that item wouldn't be on the menu anymore and they were bumped out because they were excited to have it again. So I kind of stopped doing that and I kind of tweaked the menu to we always are going to have some seasonal items on there but for the most part like if like say let's asparagus in the spring instead of putting asparagus dish on the menu I just do asparagus specials for six weeks, eight weeks, however long we have it, um, and keep the menu kind of the same. And because I felt like it's it's better for the cooks and the servers to know the food inside and out, to, to really know something really well. And I think uh, it's good for business as far as our like, customers coming in. And like I always, we go and we get the octopus. We always get the octopus and fair, blah, blah, blah. And it's just, it's, it's better. I, it's better for me. Some people can do it. I tried really hard and I didn't think I was very good at it. And so I kind of tweaked the menu to take a lot of like the super seasonal stuff off. Like I don't think I would ever have like a, a tomato dish, a raw tomato dish in my menu. You know, just, I when tomatoes are here, we'll do them, we'll use them in three different ways. Up, You know, when, with tomato season, we had gazpacho, we had tomato salad, we had baked tomatoes, we had all kinds tomato of things. But actually on the menu, I, I didn't do it. And that was one of the things that I, I was a conscious decision to do because it, it may, I think it's better for everybody. Well, it also, I think, you know, Thomas Keller did this great, this great interview on, on TEDx um, a couple years back where he talks about the difference between passion and desire. And that, you know, when cooks say, oh, I'm super passionate about something, you know, and they're passionate because asparagus comes into season. He talks about, well, in, in two weeks or three weeks, are you so passionate about that asparagus? And I think it helps keep everyone excited about, you know, new preparations and new things that we're doing um, when we have those seasonal things come in rather than put them on the menu and after two weeks a cook's bored with cooking that or whatnot. I think that that works out really well. It's also like a, a an experimental thing where you say, okay, I'm going to come up with this asparagus dish and then you're going to do it the way, it'll, you know, for the rest of the whatever we decide to do. And sometimes maybe you don't make the dish enough to get a good idea and then you put it on the menu and maybe you haven't done it enough to like work out all the kinks and then you're sort of hoisting it on your your guests and you're like, you haven't really worked it out and be like, wow, that was a really horrendous idea. We should have done it. Like, that actually happened one year. A couple times. I had this idea to do this like Marcona almond like peanut butter kind of thing. Where I, don't, I don't know what occurred to me, why I would do that. And it was horrible. It was just horrible. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to do that ever again. And then we changed it like a week later. We it did. Was just, it was horrendous. <laughs> and the servers wouldn't tell me that they hated it, but no one said anything when they tasted it. And I was like, that's gives you a bad sign. <laughs> yeah, right. No one says anything. You know? <laughs> so I was like, ah, oh, man, that was terrible. You know? And now I, I've, I think also I tried to, you know, as a chef, I always look at what everybody else does, and I always feel like, like I always, every time I look at a menu, I think the same thing. Wow, I would have never thought of that. You know, and so I, I think I tried really hard to be like kind of creative or, or do things that maybe aren't really me or my style. And now I've become a lot more comfortable like in my own skin as far as what I cook. And now the way I feel is like if I just grilled the asparagus and put salt and pepper and really good olive oil on it, that's enough. 
you know, I don't feel the need to like go crazy with a hundred different ingredients or, or push the envelope as it were. As I get older, like that's the way I want to cook. I, I as a, someone that owns a business and runs a kitchen and employs people, one of the things it's hard, you, you don't want your cooks to be bored because sometimes a young cook might look at a dish like that and be like, well, that's not very exciting, you know? And it's, it takes a mature person to kind of like look at it that way because they might look at somebody else's dish that has 42 ingredients or like 18 different kinds of edible flowers. Be like, wow, that looks really cool. We have we've had cooks like that. And we that yeah, don't get that don't get Mark's cooking. I've had a guy actually say that to me. Like it's it's just it's boring to me, you know. And it's like I and I do I, I absolutely understand it. You're you're sautéing an octopus or grilling an octopus and putting it on a plate with olive oil and paprika. It's not the most exciting thing in the world. So I, I get it. But it's also it, those same people that want to make foam before they know how to roast a really great chicken you know and where where the hospitality world is right now in appreciating great technique and really simple dishes is it's kind of heartbreaking you know it's the same kind of thing in wine and the, the beverage world as well it's like let's have a really great glass of wine with this really great dish and sometimes that's not as cool as, you know, a slushy. <laughs> <laughs> Just to pull an example totally out of here. Alright, well, let's talk a sore subject now. Uh-uh. Michelin. It's coming up soon. Are you going to get docked again? Did they have the Marcona almonds thing and that's why you're doomed? <laughs> I, you know, I, I, it didn't really upset me that much, to be honest with you. Like, I, there's a part of me I really don't care. Um, there's a part of me the business owner cares because I, I think it does help bring people in. Uh, but there's a part of me that, that could care less about any kind of award whatsoever. Because we don't do this for awards. But, I don't know. I think recognition, it's nice, you know. And I feel like we haven't gotten all that much but that tells me either I need to try harder you know or do better or something I, I you know like I think about it I, I don't really think about it that much to be honest with you like uh, when it comes out I'll look and I'll see like oh okay nice for them <laughs> you know and and I might get a little peeved for a minute but then like the next day it's like whatever who cares like I I can't get too upset about that stuff because it's and the older I get, the less I care because I feel like it's, it's just, it's about the guest. It's about taking care of our guests. And if our people that come on a regular basis, which we have a lot, if they're very happy, then I'm happy. You know, if a Michelin star, it would be great to bring in more people. It would be great to have maybe more international people. It would be great for business. But if it doesn't happen, then it doesn't happen. You know, I, yeah. think, I think I had to deal with that a lot more than Mark did. Because for the two weeks that between the Bib Bourbon coming out and then the stars, I mean, everybody walking in the door for the week in between were saying, oh, well, you must be getting a star. And then the stars come out and didn't get a star. And what I, what I keep telling everyone, because yes, chatter has started again amongst some of our regulars who, you know, pay attention to those kind of things, whether they agree with them or not. And the chatter started a little bit, and what I say is this. If we keep our head down and do what we do best and make the guests happy and people are still coming back, the recognition is great, but it, it isn't the end-all be-all. Our thing is, you know, just do a little bit better than the day before. Just do a little bit better than yesterday. And if we are doing a little bit better than yesterday, then hopefully that's making people happy. The accolades come, awesome. But if they don't, don't get discouraged. I feel like if you focus on that, it makes you a, uh, a really warped, bitter, frustrated person. <laughs> <laughs> because I know people who are in the business who are, who are very cynical and warped, and you can't focus on that. You're allowed, I think everybody's allowed a certain amount of like anger or self-pity for a little. Then you have to just get over it and get on with your life because it will make you really bitter and warped. Because you're going to, you will see somebody on there and you're going to be like, my food's better than theirs, or I had a bad meal there, and I don't know why they get. Why did I get it? And if you love that, that. that will just eat you alive, and yeah. you, you won't be successful in the long run. 
and if you if you deserve recognition, I sooner or later I think you're gonna get it. If you Absolutely. just can stick around and stay open long enough, I believe that maybe that's naive, but I just feel that it's way. It's like a football player who complains because they don't get the ball from the quarterback. It's like, well, are you good enough to get the ball from the quarterback? <laughs> you know? It's like do good work and the rest will follow. expect you to be in your restaurant every single day they don't expect you to have day off they like they walk in the door like people walk in the door to the Bristol they want to see Phil and John they want to see Chris and they walk in here they want to see us and they want you know they want to see you and, and that's that is an absolutely huge compliment however it's not sustainable <laughs> you, can't, you can't work every day and you know it's so it's so funny like I mean my friends and family when they want to see me they come here <laughs> they come here and they dine yeah. and God love them for understanding I mean you know Mark wrote that piece how many ever years ago you know the open letter to the culinary student and all of it is still true it's missing birthdays and weddings and holidays and hopefully having people in your life that understand that um, but People do expect you to be in your restaurant every day, and when you're not, you usually just want to stay home and sleep because you're just, so you know, tired. It's funny, like this hasn't happened recently, but I work more now. It seems like, but there were a couple of times where people wanted to see me, and they'll send me an email or a text or something like, "Hey, I'm coming in," and it's always like on a day that I decided I wanted to take off. Right. And I'll be like, you know, I'm not gonna be there, and they're like, oh, like you get that sense from them. It's like. Dude, I, I've I had people three months in a row, right. and then you're like that one day they want to come in. It just so happens this day, and you're like, you're like, oh well, so, maybe another time. And I'm just like, no, I'll, so I'll we open, there. yeah, and they don't come. Like I get got them the same text. Hey, we're coming to see you. And I'm like, I'm not in the building, and they're like, okay, we'll come another day. And it's like, no, go there, yes. please go oh, yeah. there. <laughs> but you know, what's so much to that to that end. So Mark and I opened two years ago, the third week of October. And our first, and at the time we were closed on Mondays, um, and but our first full day off together, and actually it wasn't even a full day off because we came in in the morning, was our anniversary, which was in April. And we came in, we worked, we went and had lunch, worked dinner, and you know, so you know, everybody like, takes pictures of their food and this and that, but we had like no cell phone roll during anniversary and birthday dinners. And my phone is just like going berserk in my purse. And like, I can feel it vibrating. And I'm just like, babe, I, I have to look at this. I mean, something's up. And look at it. Every like single person that could have come in that night yeah. did come in that yeah. night. Like the first night, like winemaker from Bethel Heights was here, which was such an honor because I have a, a, a small obsession with wines from the Willamette Valley. And, and he's here and I'm like all these people are there and we're not there it's like it's okay to take a day off <laughs> but it it always seems to happen that way always you yeah. know if we had like 20 restaurants no one would ever expect us right right but because of this the way it is they expect us to always be here and, and you we, know, actually we are pretty much always here always here like always here but it's our baby still still you know it's still a child and I just wrote this blog post where like it still needs us to hold its hand and nurture it and grow it and discipline it and it's still a child it's still a baby still gotta be there for it it's better though oh yeah, yeah. in some ways it's sleeping through the night it's yeah. a child that's finally <laughs> sleeping through well, the night I sleep a little bit yeah Vera is at 1023 West Lake in the West Loop. I was thinking about doing a list of other Spanish restaurants in town, but it's kind of a cliched area. A place like Cafe Iberico in River North is about having a loud, boozy time and the food to soak it up. Not that there's anything wrong with that. 
but it's Spanish in a different way from Vera, which is about going to the markets and serving the freshest, simplest things with just a few classic accents. It's kind of like the difference between old-school Italian red sauce joints and a contemporary Italian restaurant that's serving really fresh stuff. Anyway, one of that type, that that isn't great, but it's kind of a nice little under-the-radar find, is up on the northwest side, way up. It's called Cafe Marbella. It's at 5527 North Milwaukee. Check it out, then go to Vera, and you'll see the difference in approach between one kind of Spanish and another. I have links for that and other things like the blog post the Mendez has mentioned at skyfullofbacon.com. Anthony Todd was my media guest for the very first episode of Airwaves Full of Bacon. And since it was coming after some rapid shrinking of the food media scene, including me, a lot of people told me afterwards that they found our conversation very interesting and very depressing. Now here we are six months later, and hopefully we'll just be one of those things. Anthony's still in more or less daily coverage of the action on the food scene at Chicagoist, but with Grub Street, which I was a faithful reader of before I was the editor of, gone, I feel like I'm much less on top of things. So maybe Anthony can help me understand what's been going on out there on the food scene in the latter half of 2013. But you know, I mean, as long as Graham Elliott is running his restaurants and Ryan Poley's at Tavernita and Carrie Taylor's at the Southern and Kevin Hickey's at Allium, how much can the scene have changed in six months, right? Nothing changed in the last in the last two weeks. It's been a really slow fall in Chicago food, which is actually interesting because everyone I know was bitching about the summer actually being a really slow summer for food news. There was a few interesting openings, but not all that much happened. And we were all bored and all bored and our RSS feeds are empty. And then suddenly everything happens in two or three weeks. And now we'll go back to being boring and having nothing to talk about. All right. Well, let's start with the one that is serious news um, in the last week, which, of course, is the passing of Charlie Trotter. I think the thing about Charlie Trotter that's really interesting is that he represents a figure of chefdom that is largely gone and that all of his protégés don't quite know how they feel about it. And I think that really is a lot of it. They don't know how they feel about the tyrant absolutely obsessive perfection knife throwing screaming but also literate and generous and truffle shaving chef they don't quite know because they're all trying to figure out what they're going to do as they grow in their careers and so they don't know whether to say i wholeheartedly embrace my heritage of being with charlie trotter because they don't necessarily want to be that person i think that's been the part to me that's been most interesting is seeing his former employees outside of the media react through Facebook and through social media. Because some of them have, I think, had really eloquent statements about, I don't really want to be like Trotter. I don't really like a lot of the things he did, but he's an incredible man. He was really nice to me. We need to recognize that humanity. And then there's others who are literally building monuments to him and started building monuments to him on Facebook five seconds after his death. And that's been what's interesting to me is watching the Chicago chef community grapple with what really is not even Charlie Trotter. It's a vision of what being a chef at that level looks like and whether they want to be that or not. You know, one of the things is no one else can be that unless you come from $50 million in the first place or, you know, whatever Which has not been worth. discussed. And that's something that sort of always confused me. So there was something I put out on Twitter that no one responded to probably because they didn't want to look like idiots. But there's been a lot of talk in the media about him giving out copies of books. And one of the copies of books he apparently often gave out was The Fountainhead. And I said, actually fairly respectfully on Twitter, guys, I'm really confused that I've seen this on four or five media outlets. He's incredibly wealthy and one of the most people saying the most generous person ever. Why was he giving his chefs copies of the Fountainhead? That doesn't make much sense. And see, sense. to me, that is that is kind of a key to him, which I think is, is noblesse oblige. I mean, he, he was of another type of, you know, the rich are different. And apparently the, the restaurant never made money. Yep. They, never, they, they only made money once he got on TV and started doing this or that. But, you know, like Charles Foster Kane, you know, I can lose a million dollars a year and I'll have to close in 60 years. So he could behave in a way that no, no chef who actually <laughs> has to at least kind of break even-ish for his wealthy patron or something, you know, can do. I also think that goes the other direction, too. One of the pieces that I wrote a long time ago that got ton of traffic recently in the wake of the death was a piece I wrote called The Darker Side of Charlie Trotter, which was about his relationship with his employment lawsuits. And 
the details aren't important, but one of the reasons why I think he was able to be so free, to be such a tyrant, and to be so openly mean. I remember reading something in his obituary about how he was really mad that he only got second meanest person in Chicago behind, I think, Michael <laughs> Jordan. Uh, I think one of the reasons he could do that is because he was independently wealthy. It didn't matter if his chef sued him. It didn't matter if his kitchen staff walked out. I mean, it didn't matter. He could do what he wanted. And so in a certain way, he also is this iconic figure of the chef who is completely above the fray. He doesn't care about the receipts. He doesn't care about anything. He doesn't care about his employees. Not that he doesn't care about their well-being, but he doesn't have to perform to them in a certain kind of way. He can be whatever he wants to be. He can put out this very iconic food without mention of food costs. And of course, none of his followers can ever live up to that. I and mean, even Grant Ockotts isn't going to live up to that because he has to make a living. Right. Well, and there's one other thing that he didn't have to care about, and that clearly is local food writers. Um, and I think that's that's one of the things, I mean, you see in these people who are trying to be, you know, Charlie's BFF now in retrospect, uh, some of whom I know were thrown out of his restaurant at different points, um, is we weren't his audience. The head of Morgan Stanley, who ate there 475 times, is probably his first audience. Uh, somewhere journalists appear on that list, but they're... They're the very, very high-end elite ones for national and international publications and things like that. Um, you know, when, when I went to that $2,500 plate dinner, at which I was by far the least wealthy guest, uh, you know, nor, the people at my table were like Norman Van Aken and Jay McInerney. Yeah, no, he, we definitely weren't his audience. I, but I think that's one of the reasons why in later years, maybe, you could argue he became less relevant because that audience, which at a certain time had sway over the universe of dining, no longer does. I mean, that we've seen very clearly that the trendy place to be in dining right now is the high middle, not the high, because a lot more normal people are spending a lot more on food and are willing to have food of a lot higher quality and level of complexity. And so that level of crazy high dining for the millionaires is just not as trendy anymore. It doesn't get as much attention. Well, and I felt that when I was there. It was the clubhouse of people who learn who got money and learned to eat somewhere in the 80s or early 90s and had now been going there for 15 or 20 some years um but it it does make it hard for all of us to evaluate because nobody's going to have the experience with the restaurant i'm not even talking about 475 times but you know i went there twice separated by a couple of decades you know and the first time, what the hell did I know about food? So I don't, you know, I, I have no basis for really evaluating that restaurant. In some ways, I feel like I understand what Trotter is about more by having eaten at MK recently. Because I feel like that's another restaurant that kind of came out of the same scene and does does kind of clean, well-made 90s food. And I don't mean that in a way that it's dated, but just that it's it's sort of core principles are we're not going to be bizarro here. We're not gonna, you know, we're not going to turn things into new chemical compounds for you to eat. It's it's clean, well-made food of a of a certain era. My version of that is a restaurant by someone like Bill Kim because I think that to me is the trendy thing now, right? It is something that is interesting. It's complicated. It's not very expensive. It's very cutting edge. It's opening right now. And it came out of Trotter's Kitchen. And we got to give him credit for cultivating those people. But I think that's exactly what happened, is those people and their scene moved beyond Charlie Trotter. And they even moved beyond MK, right? If you look at MK, it's sort of the same audience. It's the same People age. who've been going there for a long time. You have people who've been, who've been having Michael Cornick's food for a really long time. Michael Cornick, however, unlike Charlie Trotter, and I think this was the thing Charlie Trotter never did, Michael Cornick has opened other low-end restaurants. And that's why I actually have a lot of respect for Michael Cornick as an innovator. Charlie Trotter was an innovator for one moment, and then he was a really, really, really good manager and chef. But he had one really good idea, and it was opening Charlie Trotter's. Whereas a lot of his protégés have had many, many good ideas, but not necessarily were so amazing of a chef or so amazing as a manager. So that's the difference. The other thing, too, is, I mean, it really points to how wine has become less important on the scene. I mean, those those would be two of the very few places, I suppose you could name Everest and a couple of others, maybe, where, you know, the, the cellar is worth more than a house in Winnetka. And that just, nobody opens that restaurant anymore. No, and, and people of my generation don't know how to eat there. And I don't mean that to be insulting to people of my generation, but no one I know who's 35 and under drinks wine that way. It's not that we don't love wine. It's that we've grown up on 
very fruit forward South the world where South American wines and Australian wines were the norm. And I'm not sure I have the palate, even as someone who has a pretty good palate, to appreciate a $10,000 bottle of French wine. It's just not what we seek out, right? I seek out interesting craft beers and I seek out interesting not inexpensive, but moderately priced wines, because that's what I've grown up with in the dining scene. I would never, if someone poured me a $10,000 bottle of wine, I wouldn't know what to do with it. You know, you might as well get two $5,000 bottles at that well, point. Apparently, or right. about $250 bottles of wine. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't know what to do with it. That's not how I eat. And I think it's complicated for restaurants because bottle service, even at the $50 level, is becoming relatively less common in terms of wine service, right? People aren't buying a lot of bottled wine in restaurants like they used to. People are still certainly buying bottled wine, but you don't see restaurants written up as wine destinations very much anymore, right. unless you're Vera and you're a wine destination because your wine is weird, but still cheap. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say probably Trotter's audience didn't know anything about wine either. The difference was you had Trotter and Larry Stone there trying to teach them that. And, you know, I understand. I mean, there, there were a lot of the, the collectors who've eaten at Trotter's a million times at this fancy schmancy thing that I went to. And a lot of them had acquired wines because Larry Stone told them to or, told you know, told them what to get or sold it to them directly or whatever. That does bring up an interesting question about the nature of Trotter's and maybe why the world moved beyond it. There was a certain time at which people needed to go to places to be educated about food because clearly they didn't they didn't grow up with it because it was complicated and interesting and new but they these were the people who were not necessarily going to go to Chinatown they weren't going to go up to Devon Street they weren't going to go to these places where wacko stuff was happening the scene now is much more like those ethnic restaurants before. It's a little bit challenging. You kind of have to have some idea what you're doing. Uh, the ingredients are crazy. And you're not going to have a service team of seven people to sort of hold your hand and walk you through the food, right? Charlie Trotter's was a food university for a whole generation of people, but their kids don't need it. I mean, their kids already have that culinary education from going out to dinner with their parents or from going out and exploring on their own when they were in college and when they were graduate graduated from college. So they don't need to go to Trotter's to have someone teach them how to eat food. They know how to eat food. See, and that's why I told my parents, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to borrow the money to go to school. I'm just going to borrow the money to go to, to, go to Charlie Trotter's. So. <laughs> and now, and you don't need to do that anymore. Now you yeah. can borrow the money to go to Usho and Moto and Belly Q and all the places that Charlie Trotter's protege is open where you can get a much more challenging experience. Right. When, when I talked to Lisa's, Lisa Seamus a few episodes back, she said that, 2012 seemed like the year of the small personal project restaurant. Chris Nugent, Goosefoot, uh, Ileana Reagan, Elizabeth, Jean Cato with Sumi, whatever. Uh, that seems to have stopped. I, yeah. It's very hard to think of places that fit that bill. I mean, Bad Wolf Coffee down the street from me, you know, is one that's a coffee shop and pastries. It's not, it's not a $400, you know, foraged, uh, you know, tasting menu. Um Jake Bicklehop, they'll have one when he opens whatever his Sioux Rising restaurant will be. But, you know, I kind of haven't had a lot of that. We've had a lot of big places. I mean, the Dawson just opened. A lot of corporate restaurants. Kind a lot of, of corporate. restaurants feel corporate. A lot of restaurants feel... A lot of restaurants from big restaurant groups and a lot of restaurants where you can tell they've got 17 investors and a lot of backers. And it's not really about a crazy innovative concept. It's about putting people in seats and giving them a decent meal. And the other thing, too, is it's... The thing that came back with a vengeance, or is about to come back with a vengeance, apparently, is steak. I mean, a lot of the places that have announced a new project, it's a steakhouse. And there's even, you know, we, we don't know how real this is, but uh, one of the menus at next next year may be steakhouse. They sure seem to be hinting strongly that it will be. So, you know, what's what's behind that? Did Is it just that there's so damn many people who want to be fed and they, they, some of them, enough of them want normal food now or what? I mean, I think it's complicated. I think one of the reasons is steak is a mark of prosperity. It's a mark of better times economically. And I think a lot of people want to think we're heading towards happy days ahead. I think what's going to kill the steakhouse boom is if we do not continue to see economic growth, not to sound like I'm on McNeil Lehrer instead of scaffold bacon, but if we don't see continued economic growth, if things don't keep getting slowly better, a lot of these steakhouse projects, I suspect, are going to disappear. Because the reason why we've seen, I think, so many gourmet-ish counter service and casual places is because it's something people know, chefs know, people can afford. 
And so there's no worries about whether you can afford an $80 steak. But if you're opening a fried chicken restaurant, everyone can afford it. And so you don't have to worry about limiting your audience. If you're opening a high-end steakhouse, you're automatically cutting out 90% of the population, which works in good times. But there's a reason why a lot of those restaurants closed when the economy turned south. So I think a lot of people are banking on prosperity and happiness, and they want to be there when the expense accounts come in the door. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, too, is, I mean, the, re the restaurant groups gave cachet to the less expensive things. You can go have a hamburger and feel hip if the hamburger's at Ocheval. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the problem also. It's, it's going to be potentially another interesting thing to see generationally because I don't see a lot of 20-somethings going to these steakhouses. I, you know, my other life, I'm a law student, and the question I get asked most often is, where can I take my parents? And what they mean is, which steakhouse should we go to? Then whenever in law school, and even these potential lawyers who sometimes have a lot of money from their summer jobs, no one ever asks me, what steakhouse do I want to go to? Because they don't. They don't go to steakhouses. Maybe they will someday when they're going to corporate meetings. And so that's another thing that's generationally interesting is are these steakhouses going to find a way to get that audience back in? With innovative menus, with interesting takes on steak, I don't think, I think Next is going to be really a good example of this because you know Next is not going to serve you $170 steak. I think that's going to be the question is can you make a beef focused restaurant that has some of the interesting stuff of a steakhouse going on, but like Bavette's, a lot of the compelling stuff isn't steak. Because otherwise, you're not going to get anyone who's not 50 and doesn't have an expense account. Although, I mean, you hear about something like the Dawson, and apparently it is, you know, cornering the market on bros in that part of town for right now. So, you know, it's entirely possible that there are people who do not think like us out Absolutely. there who go to restaurants, as yeah. amazing as it may seem. So, um, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe this is, I mean, I kind of feel like there may be a reaction against weirdly assembled, quirky food. Uh, which has been in ascendance for a few years, and, and people people want more normal stuff. Absolutely. I, my only wonder is, will the reaction to that be steakhouses? And specifically why I say that is because it's so expensive. Right. And that's the thing with good, especially now that good meat is in, if you want to have good meat, if you want to have big hunks of good meat, good Lord. I mean, steaks are now $70, $80 at some of these restaurants. That's a lot to expect anyone in the dining public to spend. I mean, talk about bottles of wine. I mean, I was at David Burke's, the highest end steak is somewhere in that range. It's somewhere in the 70 to $80 range. That's insane. I mean, that's out of my budget. I can't possibly afford it. So maybe there are some bros who want to do that for a prestige dish, maybe, because they can brag to their friends and they can take it, take it and brag about it. But I don't know. That's a hard sell. I think that's a hard sell to any restaurant audience. Well, there are apparently people spending vast amounts of money on bottle service, too, which I hardly even know what that is. I don't understand know. it at all. But on the other hand, apparently that trend is also waning. Oh, uh, or at least I get releases to that effect with something they're substituting for it on at least a weekly basis. Hmm. I, I don't want to think about what you substitute for bottle service. All right, let's talk about uh, media. Where's the media now since six months ago when everybody was getting canned? Louisa Chu is back at WBEZ. Yep. Um, or may never have left, or I'm not quite sure. She she has half of a uh, podcast, even because podcasting is so hip and the route to riches, no doubt about it. Absolutely, just like blogging. Actually. Yeah, they're blogging, both, both blogging. The you know, you know. I think I my my assessment is similar to what it was, though I think it's cautiously optimistic on a couple of fronts. I think that you're seeing. Talented people continue to have jobs, right? You see even Monica Eng is the other half of that podcast who is a brilliant writer and is still employed. Uh, you're seeing Timeouts Food Section, which I have to disclaim, I'm a part of often, okay. has rebounded since it lost David and Julia Kramer, David Tamarkin and Julia Kramer. Um, Amy Kavanaugh is doing a wonderful job and is being just as critical as ever, which is, I think, what I liked about that outlet. Sula continues to be as critical as ever. You're getting published in the reader with big long form pieces that we all like. On the other hand, but I, I don't have a Tumblr yet, like Sula does. I, see, I need to be meaner. You need to be meaner. You need to be. You need to be a critic. Yeah, yeah. But that being said, I still think we have a dearth of critics. I, I'm going to continue saying that forever because I don't think we're going to get any more. And the problem is now. I think we're almost running into problem part two, which is we almost have a dearth of good news, uh, which is what you're trying to do in in the reader. I think we don't have a ton of good long form investigative news. We have a lot of quick breaking news. But there's only a couple places that are doing good long-form news. And so we sort of lost, and that was the, the byproduct of losing the critics, is because a lot of those critics were writing those pieces on the side. You know, there used to be a lot of those pieces in Time Out, 
on the side. There used to be a lot of those pieces happening in other outlets, and now they're not a ton. And that's a shame because I love that kind of journalism. Some of it's going to the newer independent magazines. I like that. You know, I like that we have all these new food zines coming out. It remains to be seen how many of them will survive and be profitable. But And we have to admit that that, much like podcasting, is always a small audience. It's always a labor of love as well. You're never going to make any money at yeah. it. Yeah, I don't, I don't have anything profound to say about the scene. My apologies. The media scene right now is like it was before, with the exception of the fact that Time Out has rebounded, and I think that some traditional outlets are losing some of their influence. I'm going to go right out and say it. I think that Eater has dropped an influence since it lost Arbendersky, who is one of the great news-gathering foodies of our a titan. cohort. A titan in that particular talent. He was the best. My vision of Ari is whenever I went to some place where I thought news was breaking, Ari was standing there talking to the chef. So, And I think that's absolutely right. He had a network of contacts unlike anything I can even fathom. And luckily, he's still writing for Cranes. And so Cranes... Uh, almost suddenly, suddenly has this really interesting reputation for breaking cool food news all of a sudden, which is great. That's a perfect example, by the way, of what I think I would like to see more outlets doing, which is saying there's talent out there, and frankly, there's talent out there that can probably come cut rate. Um, (laughs) Not to be sarcastic. Not that I would know anything about that. Not that that we would know anything about that at all. But there's talent out there that's wanting work, and so they're taking it. I think that, that there is no Grub Street anymore, and Eater's influence as a newsbreaker has decreased a little bit. I don't think we see as many people running there to, to break interesting stories, which has sort of a, a two effects. One of them is you never know where news is going to break. Right? We're breaking news at Chicagoist more than we ever used to. You see news breaking on Cranes. You do occasionally see news breaking on Eater. You occasionally see news breaking on Zagat. There's no longer one destination. It used to be if you wanted up-to-the-minute food news, you could bookmark Grub Street and Eater and sort of follow them, and that would be your, you'd be done. That's no longer true. However, I'm not sure that's a good thing. <laughs> that's the flip side. Is I'm not sure that's actually a good thing for the foodie consumer who's frankly not going to read 17. Right. You have, to, you have to bookmark all these things as opposed to having somebody who's you know doing the drudge bit of pointing out where the other stories are. I don't know if it's because the PR places are trying to spread the love more, if it's because those people have their feet on the ground and they're really going out and looking. I don't know what the explanation is, but I will say I think that there's more places where you can get bits and pieces of food news than there would have been six months ago. Well, let's talk about what the PR agencies, how they're, how they're dealing with not knowing who to pitch. The answer <laughs> is, I don't think the they people, are. The people go away. Um, you know, there's, there's kind of this, this theory out there that you, you pitch influencers, which is people with a lot of social media presence. Which I find inexplicable. <laughs> No, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm going to be a Luddite for a second about this. I hate that word. Anytime I get invited to something that has influencers in the title, I almost automatically say no, just because I don't want to call myself that. I think that, that there's a problem in restaurant PR right now, and that is that they don't quite know what their job is. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I wouldn't know what their job is either. Is their job to get the restaurant's name out there? Is their job to get butts and seats? Is their job to get interesting media coverage? Is their job to get buzz? And it's kind of everything. And it used to be really easy to do everything with a couple places. And the answer is this influencers thing. But I think even most PR people would tell you it's kind of a weird stopgap and no one can measure whether it's successful or not. Well, and I, I think if I think of who influences me, it's not food writers who got invited to things that I didn't get to. It's people I know who have more expense account money than I do. You know, it's my friends, my friends with better jobs who go to places sooner and travel you know, travel enough widely to be able to talk about places to eat in New York and things like that. And I, you know, I know their tastes and I know what they're, they know how to spot things and they'll go try Tanta or somewhere quickly once it opens more quickly than I necessarily will. Uh, the irony, of course, of all food writers' lives is that you're writing about Alinea and eating Jimmy John's. But, <laughs> I think uh, we had a conversation about that on Twitter. Yeah, on Twitter, yeah. It's true. No, but I think the, the thing that's interesting about that, right, is that the influencer, by definition, the way PR companies have positioned it, is not influential to those people or to me. And what I mean by that is influencers, in order to stay influential, have exactly the same problem that we talked about about the food media six months ago, which is that they have to be positive, 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 or they feel like they have to be. A lot of people labeled influencers, you don't see them saying critical things. You don't see them saying, go here, but don't go here, because that would stop the flow of invitations. It's just like those PR people who, I'm sure you remember this, back in the day used to brag about how many media mentions their client got, which was equally useless because you had no idea if anyone was paying attention to any of those media mentions. Well, coming from advertising, I mean, it's not... I'm not, I would not 
frame any of that as you know boy they're putting one over on their clients Mm -mm. it's there's nothing to hold on to in the business there's you know people watched my tv commercial three months later they bought my car do those two things have anything to do with each other we have no idea really we can focus grief till you know till the cows come home but we still don't really know and that's been true for a century that didn't just happen and the thing is i think what you know from advertising is the same thing we know from pr this is why i have a hard time when restaurant owners as they occasionally do come to me and say a should i hire pr and b who should it be because my problem is if you have a not compelling concept PR might save you for the opening, but won't save you. If you have bad food, PR might save you for the opening, but won't save you. And the problem is, frankly, that a lot of the not very compelling restaurants with good backing spend a fortune on PR, get a ton of hype, have everyone come to their opening. Everyone kind of goes, oh, yay, woo, on Twitter, but privately goes, meh, that wasn't very good. And it is a sinking ship. And I can't honestly say that PR accomplished very much. They did their jobs very well. They earned their money. They got people in the door. They got lots of opening buzz. Did it do anything? I'm not sure. Talk about PR. Probably the most popular opening of fall does their PR themselves by reaching out to people that they know. And that's Honey Butter Fried Chicken. They've had no PR. They've never had PR. Their PR is they spent years building a brand in the Sunday Dinner Club mailing list. They reached out to food writers they like, like I think both of us, who've met them and know them and talk to them and eat their food, and occasionally send us emails saying, here's what's going on at the restaurant, which I actually read because they're from a chef and not a PR person, and they have lines out the door. And the reason is because they have a compelling concept that's well executed and they didn't have to spend $10,000 a month on PR. Well, we're going to be very popular with PR people after this. <laughs> I think that the, the one thing I will say is I think the place where PR does a really, really good job, and these are the chefs where I say you should hire PR, is the chefs who are not super media savvy. They're not famous. Usually these are chefs who have been sous chefs at a lot of places and are really good, but they can't get headlines on their own. And they think they've got something really cool. And they want to make sure that people notice that they've got that something that's really cool. And I think that's the place where PR can make a huge difference. Because that's where you need someone with contacts. Because you're a chef. You've been a sous chef. You've been working in a kitchen. You don't know what the heck to do to get attention. That's where PR is really important. And that's where I think it's worth spending some of your opening budget on PR. When you think you've got something really good going, but you have no idea how to tell anybody. subject the inevitable oh subject michelin oh god do we care do we even care no no okay. no one cares no what do we you know the only reason we care is so we can complain about who they didn't include who they didn't include yeah so uh, this is being recorded in between the bib gourmands which means the bristol is either about to get a start or to have fallen off even the bib gourmands and things like that um i don't know you know what do the French think of our food? I don't know. What, I what does the Sultan less. of Brunei think of our food? I don't care. Uh, though hopefully the Michelin inspectors are locals, though we have no idea who they are. We don't know. I, I used to actually really like the concept of the Bib Gourmand. That was sort of, for me, the saving grace of Michelin. I don't even like the Bib Gourmand anymore. And there's two reasons. One, the list is so long that it's now become any restaurant that opens with a modicum of quality and hype in the previous year sort of gets on the list. And that's, that's like the Savoy got on there. Which has run through chefs, and I don't know. Do you know anyone who's ever eaten there? Not and liked it. Yeah, and it's off it now. But I mean, that to me, that's a perfect example of like they opened the door, they saw white tablecloths, and they gave it a bib gourmand. So. Yeah, and I mean, I'm, I'm happy with some of the inclusions. I one of my favorite openings of last year was Gather, even though it's in my neighborhood. Really like it. Got a bib gourmand. Yeah, I don't think it'll do anything for the restaurant, but woohoo for them. So I don't. I used to love the Bib Gourmands. That used to be my place where like this is where I can send my friends. Is go get, print off the Bib Gourmand list and go there. I'm not quite sure that's true anymore, just because it's such a big list. It doesn't feel like a huge deal, the way Michelin stars sort of, for some people, feel like. All right, so there's an interesting question, because a lot of people regard them as being really stingy uh, with Chicago. my you know Friends of mine who eat in places like New York and San Francisco, unlike me, um, tend to think that there are a lot of places that have two stars in New York that would get one if they were here, and if the Bristol was in New York, it would be the opposite. Um but now they're handing out Bib Gourmands all over the place. Are we a Bib Gourmand city? I have a feeling we're not going to get many more stars than we have now. And we've got a lot more Bib Gourmand. So that kind of tells you what they really think of us in the end. Which is really disappointing, right? Because if, if that's what they think of us, it's. I remember when I was at the very opening Michelin reception, 
I saw the head of Michelin, whose name I cannot recall right now. Can you tell me? Nere, Jean-Paul, Claude, Luc, Nere, something. <laughs> yes, many French names. Yeah. And I remember watching Rick Bayless's face when he made the announcement because he said he stood up and he said, Chicago has been a local dining destination. Chicago has even been a national dining destination. But now Chicago is a world dining city. And I think he expected a round of applause. And there was no applause. And Rick Bayless's face almost exploded. And it was because that's what they actually think, is that you're not a world dining destination until they have put their imprimatur on you. And apparently their imprimatur on us is we only eat cheap food in neighborhoods. And if that's their imprimatur on Chicago, we could do worse. Yeah, that we have many yeah. great neighborhood restaurants that don't cost a fortune and we're not so fond of ridiculous white tablecloth restaurants. Like, but I'm they happy have with really that. hard square stools. That's, you know, I'm convinced that's, that's the whole problem you have to with make the VAC. There's yeah. an inverse relationship between comfort and Michelin, apparently. <laughs> but no, I, I, I really don't, I agree with you. I don't think we're going to get very many more stars. I think the prediction that everyone's made, which is that Grace is going to get one or two, is probably right. I think that's inevitable, at least if they continue to be as good as they were at opening when they got all the reviews. I would be really happy to see Elizabeth get a star. It might be too weird for them, and it's very informal, so maybe they won't like that. Aside from that... I don't know what other one-star-ish restaurants have opened in the last year. What do you think would get one star that didn't fall? Yeah, I mean, the only other thing people... I mean, I, I'm hoping the Bristol moves up. I mean, that deserves it, but deserve got nothing to do with it. Exactly. Or uh, Beck would have one. Yeah, yeah. Or as I've been warring for the last three years, North Pond would have one, which it doesn't. You know, that... I, my theory is they kind of pick some places just to dog and leave you wondering, so what do they got against North Pond or Les Nomades or whatever? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, it's... We don't we don't make the kind of restaurants they like very much, and it's possible that L two O will go up. It's possible True will go up, uh, you know. But other than that, you know, and Grace debuting it too, I I don't know, you know, where else has the army of servers that they need to have two stars in this town? And there's certainly not another three besides Alinea. Uh, I think Grace might get there eventually, but they're they don't you don't debut at three anyway. Um, because they're the French and they're trying to torture you slowly by doling it out. So, um, yeah, it's a, a, my feeling is always that they're just kind of out of step with how we like to eat, and that's okay. They're French. They can, you know, or, they, or they're the readers are Japanese, you know, or they're, or they're Saudi Arabian or whatever they are, and there's only five restaurants people who are going to come into town from there with that much money you're going to go to anyway. So who cares? That being said, I mean, it does... The reason why... Put it this way. That being said, if it was just that, it wouldn't irk me at all. I'd be like, eh, whatever, the stupid French. The thing that gets me about it, once again, talking with fellow students, for instance, who have disposable income, they look at the Michelin list. And that infuriates me because they say, oh, I want to make sure I go to all the Michelin restaurants in Chicago before I leave. And every time I hear that... I want to kill somebody because I say, gosh, I mean, not even the Bib Gourmand list. There are so many places in Chicago that are so wonderful that you're not getting. So it does still have some influence. And I think that's why we still talk about it on podcasts like this, podcasts like this whether we want to admit it or not. It has some influence. I wasn't talking about it. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, it has some influence. And I think you're right. I think it's totally out of step with the way Chicago eats. The question will become, does it ever have enough influence to change anything? For instance, is anyone ever going to open a restaurant or change the way they serve at their restaurant to get a star? And I don't see that happening yet. I think if you have closed as a result. Trying to do that. Um, or just have closed because Michelin gave and it took away. And that makes their regular diners think, uh-oh, downhill alert. Whether yeah. it's true or not, I have no idea. And that's, of course, the problem with any rating system is the potential to have it taken away. So that's the thing that's somewhat disturbing. I remember when when L2O lost all its stars and not all its stars, lost two of its three stars. And it then became a scramble game. It was then, can we get them back? Can we get them back? Can we get them back? I'm not sure can we get stars back or get stars at all is a great way to encourage creativity among chefs. Because I think the problem is raters want better versions of what they've had before most of the time because it fits a rubric. Maybe not so with critics, maybe so with critics some of the time, but when you're doing specifically to this rating system, which is so strict and so firm and goes all around the world, you kind of want better than what I've seen in the same vein. Put more white tablecloths on, have more crystal, have better silverware. Like That's not encouraging innovation. The thing that gets me, and I am, you know, I'm not the world's biggest next promoter, though I do enjoy it a lot. It's weird that probably the most buzzworthy restaurant in America has been completely ignored by Michelin and their excuses make no sense whatsoever. Right. It's weird. 
Well, it's one thing too, right at the beginning when they went from French to Thai, and maybe there was something to their, you know, their claims. Well, it's a completely different place each time. But if you've been there several times, you know that there are recurring themes. It's the same people in the kitchen. I think we said all these things in the first episode. Yeah. But I mean, there's a next feel that you can discern if you've been there a few times. The idea that it's as if you know, a French restaurant closed and a Thai restaurant opened in the same place is plainly untrue. It almost and feels it almost feels mean. Like it almost feels like someone there is is just pig headed. Like they've just decided, like, no, we're not going to do it. We're French, and because there's no other explanation for it. I mean, I don't see any other explanation for it. But that's self defeating because it is one of the places that people immediately look at first thing when they open the book, and, and it's not there. It only does it when a restaurant's that popular and not in your book. It only does a disservice to the book because it's certainly not going to make any dent in the restaurant. Yeah, I hear it's still doing well. I, yes. I think it's selling out pretty well. Speaking of which, the fact that the aviary got tickets. Ah, no, best thing ever. Really? I am Now see, my my Twitter feed of influencers has been pretty anti this, but tell me what's your what's your theory for why that's a good thing? All those people on Twitter are wrong. Uh, and the reason I say I'm not I've never been the hugest fan of the aviary. I will admit I have not been as a customer since Charles Jolie took over and I love his work. So this is no aspersions or promotions to the aviary. But I think the way they did this was super classy and I think it's really good. Here's why. The aviary is not a bar. They can pretend all you want. You can pretend all you want. It's not a bar. You're not walking in to have drinks with your buddies. There's no televisions. You're not watching the game there. I think a lot of the people who disagree with this are disagreeing with it because they sort of have that thing in their head. That's not the aviary. It just isn't. As background, what the aviary did is they said, we're going to start selling tickets, but not tickets like next to Alinea. The tickets we're selling are effectively the same thing that happens when Open Table asks you for a credit card on your reservation. You can make a reservation at, at the aviary, it will cost you 20 bucks, and you get the 20 bucks back onto your bill. So literally all you're doing is saying, I'm committing to going. I think that's great. I think it's out of the way. It's very complicated to go there. It's a huge tourist attraction. It's very difficult to predict what the traffic's gonna be on a given night. So if I wanna go to the aviary, I don't wanna fight with 17 Brazilian tourists. I wanna make sure I have a seat. Okay. You don't lose anything. What's the downside? You don't lose a single cent. The only thing you lose is the flexibility of not deciding to go that night. Okay, well deal with it, it's not a bar. Thanks for coming back once again. And if you remember to rate this at iTunes, thanks for that, too. Thanks to Grant Ackett's and Dave Barron for letting me hang out in the kitchen at Next, Liz and Mark Mendez, and Anthony Todd. Music is by Kevin McLeod. There are lots of links and other extra stuff at skyfullofbacon.com. I'll be back in a few weeks with the book episode featuring Daniel Balud and others. This was episode six.